This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and honor to interview uh, Dr. Nicole Conson, who is the President-Elect of the European Society of Gynecologic Oncology, and she's also a gynecologic oncologist at Kliniken Essen Mitte in Germany, as well as Professor of Experimental Gynecology Medical University of Innsbruck, Austria. Welcome, Nicole. Hello, thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, the reason for this podcast is that uh, um, we will publish the ESGO Estro ESP guidelines for the management of patients with endometrial carcinoma. So a really very important uh, manuscript and an important article. And obviously, we wanted to take this opportunity uh, to take a little bit of your time and, uh, and discuss uh, some of these points. So we really appreciate you being with us. Um, I wanted to ask you, as the first question, obviously, society guidelines are always very impacting and a source of very valuable information for all gynecologic oncologists. Um, so I wanted to uh, just discuss with you why you and the team uh, felt th that we needed a, a new set of guidelines uh, for endometrial carcinoma at this time. Uh, in 2015, uh, the ESCO together with ESMO and ESTRO have held a consensus conference on endometrial cancer and this was published end of 2015, beginning of 2016, so it's five years ago now, and of course, in these past five years, a lot of clinically relevant uh, new evidence arose, and uh, this is why we decided that it's time to update, and uh, we did not only update, uh, but we also added new topics to the previous ones. So in the ESMO, ESCO, ESTRO consensus conference, uh, a selection of 12 topics have been discussed and recommendations have been uh, phrased. And uh, now we have expanded these 12 topics to, uh, to really have a complete comprehensive overview and guideline on all relevant topics in diagnosis and treatment of endometrial cancer. And this time, the involved societies were the ESCO, of course, ESTRO again, and uh, we have this time also the ESP, so the urine pathologists on board. And uh, I want to thank uh, particularly my co-chairs, Karin Kreuzberg uh, from ESTRO, Side the chair and from ESP, um, Xavier Matiaskiu was the chair and of course the amazing working group of 27 international interdisciplinary experts. Yeah, an unbelievable group of experts. And uh, Nicole, yeah. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the developing uh, process for the criteria that were used on these guidelines? I believe you go into some of these details in your methods. Absolutely. Um, so first part was uh, to put together the working group, of course. Um, here it was important to us to have a bit of consistency. So we invited some of the experts that joined the consensus conference previously, but we also wanted to have new blood, fresh 
fresh <laughs> air. So it was a balance of old and new. Interdisciplinarity, of course, crucial. We had, as I said, pathologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, gynae oncologists. And uh, then uh, this is uh, the cornerstones of, of ESCO SOPs for guideline development. Very important to us that an independent methodologist is involved. And he did a systematic literature review since the consensus conference. So uh, starting end of 2014 till mid last year when the process of development started, a systematic literature review. And then we also had as a cornerstone the external evaluation of our, our guidelines and international review. Um, so this was, at this time, it was 191 international experts from all over the world who reviewed the guideline, provided valuable feedback, and our working group met for a third physical meeting simply to discuss this feedback and implement changes uh, according to this feedback received. So uh, this was very valuable, and, and I want to thank also the external reviewers involved in this process who provided their expertise. Yeah, it's an amazing achievement, an amazing commitment from all of you. And uh, again, once again, congratulations. So, I wanted to uh, really get into the uh, the core of the of the guidelines because I really want to take advantage of your time. And I wanted to first discuss um, what are the recommendations regarding offering genetic counseling and identifying patients with uh, with Lynch syndrome in the setting of endometrial cancer. Yeah, that's an important topic as uh, about 3% of endometrial carcinomas. Uh, and if we just look at the mismatch repair deficient, it's about 10% of them uh, who are related to germline mutations in one of the MMR genes. And in our guidelines, we recommend uh, MMR immunohistochemistry or microsatellite instability testing in all endometrial carcinoma. So totally irrespective of histological subtype of, or tumor, we recommend it in all endometrial carcinomas as a kind of pre-screening to triage the patients for germline mutational analysis. Uh, the immunohistochemistry, particularly for the mismatch repair protein expression, is, is an easy uh, method to use on paraffin embedded material. So I think it's, it's very feasible to do. Mm -hmm. And Nicole, and, and I, and I think I should say that you're recommending molecular classification for all grades and all histologies. Molecular classification is really one of the major advantages in, in these guidelines, I think. It's sentinel lymph node uh, process and the integration of molecular marker is really major points in these guidelines. And uh, we indeed, as you say, recommend it in all endometrial carcinomas. <clears throat> of course, it's of particularly uh, importance in high-grade tumors. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it has uh, implication on, on, on adjuvant 
uh, treatment decision making, uh, but we do encourage to do it in all endometrial carcinomas. Why? Uh, because of it's really it's um, it's the the comp- if you know all these four categories, it's important to know all four categories because it has been shown that there are some carcinomas with uh, multiple classifiers. So there are cases where you have both two or sometimes even three molecular uh, classification groups. So you can have a pole E mutation, the best one, you know, with very good prognosis, Mm -hmm. and you can have a P53 mutation, the ones having the worst prognosis, uh, in one patient. So if you just do one analysis, you might miss uh, the, the other outcome. So it's really... Uh, the important thing is to perform all these uh, analyses to that result in the identification of the four classifications. So there are these TCGA molecular subtypes, and you have these surrogate uh, markers, which can be determined by immunohistochemistry, so the, for mismatch repair proteins for P53 mutation. And for the poly-E mutation, you need to do this uh, uh, sequencing test. So this is a little bit more of an effort uh, and also more uh, costly. Uh, but with this analysis, reanalysis, you can uh, categorize your patients really into the four prognostic uh, risk groups, which is crucial. We mentioned in the guidelines that poly-E mutation analysis may be omitted in low-risk and intermediate-risk endometrial carcinoma with low-grade histology uh, for the reason mentioned that, uh, of course, not everybody has access uh, and to pull e-sequencing analysis and also for the cost reason, it's uh, not for all centers, it's feasible to do it, and in addition, in this uh, low intermediate risk group of low-grade histology, of course, it has uh, only limited clinical relevance to additionally have polyimitation. But in general, we encourage molecular classification in all endometrial carcinomas. Yeah, and I uh, I should direct also our readers to, uh, you provide a really excellent table in the manuscript on the definitions of the prognostic uh, risk groups. So, um, thank you for doing that. Now, I wanted to move Thanks. on to uh, the uh, preoperative and uh, intraoperative management. And if we can start talking about um, what are the recommendations today with regards to the imaging studies that should be obtained prior to surgery in a patient with uh, endometrial <coughs> cancer. And I'm also interested in, um, is there still a role for frozen section evaluation? Mm-hmm. Um, so we conclude in our guidelines uh, that it's mandatory for preoperative workup to include either pelvic MRI or expert uh, vagin- transvaginal or transrectal al- ultrasound. Mm-hmm. So the one or the other, it's, uh, it's um, very accurate uh, diagnostic tests to identify 
cervical stroma involved my myometrial invasion and with MRI, also lymph node metastasis. So the one or the other uh, should be done. We emphasize expert uh, transvaginal ultrasound. So in good hands, it has similar di diagnostic performance uh, in comparison to MRI, the ultrasound. Uh, for the second part of your question <clears throat> regarding frozen section, so we do not uh, encourage frozen section for myometrial invasion assessment uh, simply for the reason of poor reproducibility and also this frozen section might interfere with adequate later pathological processing and uh, also as said, in, in light of the sentinel lymph node concept that we strongly promote now in these guidelines, I think it's also uh, of decreasing uh, clinical relevance to do this. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, sentinel lymph nodes in a, in a few minutes as well. I want <laughs> yes. to just... Uh, um, I think you know it's 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 a it's agreed upon by by most gynecologic oncologists that the ideal surgical approach should be uh, minimally invasive uh, surgery for patients with endometrial cancer. Um, are there any concerns um, for patients with high risk disease? So our working group absolutely had uh, no concern about the minimal invasive approach in apparently stage 1-2 endometrial carcinoma, not even in high-risk endometrial carcinoma. There are uh, randomized prospective uh, trials out there giving very clear evidence like the LAP2 trial or the LACE trial comparing laparotomy with laparoscopic approach that show clearly show it's it's safe uh, it's it's quicker recovery rate is faster and and uh, less morbidity and same uh, survival outcome so we're not concerned about high risk uh, and minimally invasive. Okay, approach. great. And now, Nicole, another question that often uh, seems to come up in uh, um, the role of omentectomy or mental biopsy, should we continue doing that for which tumors? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that and what did the committee decide? Uh, it's really the question of risk uh, for microscopic or mental metastasis. So uh, clearly the serous endometrial carcinomas and the undifferentiated uh, carcinoma has been shown to have a high risk of microscopic or mental metastasis in stage 1 disease in the literature. So we, we uh, do recommend it for serous undifferentiated. Uh, we also recommend uh, doing infracolic or mentectomy for carcinosarcomas. <clears throat> Not because of the high rate, it, it ranges about 6% mm -hmm. uh, for carcinosarcomas, but uh, we consider it important uh, because uh, if these patients are upstaged uh, to advanced disease due to a mentectomy, they might have a chance also to participate in advanced stage clinical trials. So it's, it's an opportunity for these patients, we think, but it's clearly not indicated in endometroid or in clear cell histological subtype because it's, it's uh, yeah, less than 5% uh, of microscopic or mental metastasis in, in these histological subtypes. Great. 
So now another uh, question that uh, seems to come up frequently now uh, and, and often we're asked whenever we present about sentinel lymph node mapping, um, the role of sentinel lymph node mapping under these new guidelines is, is basically the question, sentinel lymph node mapping alone recommended for all grades and histologies. And, and I particularly ask about this because often when we discuss the, the topic of sentinel lymph nodes, there are a lot you know, who, who might say, well, yes, I'm okay in, in low-grade patients or low-risk patients, but definitely in the high-risk histologies, I still do a full lymphadenectomy. So I wanted to see what are the new guidelines and the recommendations uh, with regards to sentinel lymph node mapping alone. Uh, thank you very much, Pedro, for bringing up and underlining this, this topic because I think it's one of the most relevant ones uh, of this joint 3E, three European guidelines. Um, it's exactly as you say. Uh, we now recommend and we state it should be performed uh, lymph node staging in high intermediate risk and high risk disease, of course. And we state that sentinel lymph node uh, staging is an acceptable alternative to systematic lymph nodectomy uh, with contribu considerable lower morbidity for the patient, of course. So systematic lymphadenectomy can be substituted by lymph node staging, sentinel lymph node staging, also in high intermediate risk and high risk disease. And uh, this recommendation is based on prospective cohort studies. Uh, we, we knew already since long <laughs> time the nicer data of you, uh, Pedro, and, and, and uh, yeah, published by Suleiman. Uh, so these were very clear data, and now we have additional data. Uh, the Shrek trial from Jan Persson, and now just recently this year presented at ASCO, and uh, this month published the CENTOR trial. So all in, in high-risk patients, high-grade patients, and they've all shown that it's safe to do sentinel lymph node in these patients, so we are, we are absolutely uh, comfortable with uh, with sentinel lymph node technique in this high intermediate risk and high risk disease based on these prospective uh, cohort studies. For patients with low risk and intermediate risk, uh, we state in our guidelines that sentinel lymph node biopsy can be considered. Uh, surely in these patients, no systematic lymphadenectomy is, is uh, recommended. Great. There are nice data from Sloan that show that in these patients, around 5% have lymph node metastasis. So sentinel lymph node can be considered in this group of patients. Fantastic. So now I wanted to perhaps put you a little bit on the spot um, with a question that often also comes up the isolated tumor cells in endometrial cancer. <laughs> yeah. Are these patients node positive patients or um, how should we view isolated tumor cells in endometrial cancer? Yeah, that, that's really an interesting topic, the isolated tumor cells. Of course, now with <laughs> sentinel lymph node, 
technique more and more implemented in clinical routine. We detect these isolated tumor cells uh, during ultra-staging of sentinel lymph nodes, but um, the current uh, data are, are sparse, and uh, we, at the moment, there is no known prognostic significance mm -hmm. for ITCs, and therefore, it is uh, considered to be node negative, so pathological uh, node status zero. Mm -hmm. That's right. the current evidence. Yeah. yeah. So now an another question that comes up, and particularly from our younger patients, um, the issue of preserving the ovaries in the setting of endometrial cancer. Um, what are the what are the current recommendations uh, for for patients and ovarian preservation? Mm. Uh, so these data that we have are retrospective studies on ovarian preservation and meta-analysis of retrospective studies. And they show that in young patients, younger than 45 years of age, low-grade endometroid histology and no myometrial invasion more than half, so one eighth, uh, in these patients, it's safe to perform ovarian preservation, has no impact on relapse-free or overall survival. Of course, it's <coughs> important to exclude uh, extra-uterine disease in these patients and also patients with a family history involving ovarian cancer risk, BLCA mutations or Lynch syndrome also should, of course, not undergo ovarian preservation. Yeah. And another question that frequently also comes up in our tumor board or a disposition conference, the, the patients that have endometrial cancer with extension down into the cervix, and there's always seems to be this discussion of, well, those patients need a radical hysterectomy, and then some in the other group will say, well, no, only a simple hysterectomy. So for the patient with stage 2 endometrial cancer, should we still perform radical hysterectomy or is a simple hysterectomy completely adequate? Um, <coughs> so we, we recommend um, that total hysterectomy is the standard surgical approach also for stage 2. Endometrial carcinoma, the level of evidence is low. It's a, a grade 4 evidence, so it's it's retrospective studies. There is a meta-analysis on this uh, by a Chinese group. They included 10 retrospective cohort studies into this meta-analysis covering almost 3,000 patients, and there was no impact on, of the radicality of hysterectomy on local recurrence rate, disease-free survival, and overall survival, and therefore uh, we we uh, conclude that total hysterectomy is the standard surgical uh, approach, but um, more extensive procedures procedures should be performed if it is required to achieve free margin. I see. Yeah, this is the agreement we found. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it totally makes sense. Now, asking you about uh, fertility preservation, and this is something that we see quite frequently here, uh, particularly obviously with our practice in the United States. Um, as it pertains to young patients who are obese and obviously they, they, they want to preserve their fertility. Um, what uh, are the guidelines recommending with regards to the appropriate workup uh, when considering a fertility preservation? 
And, and who do you consider the ideal candidates for fertility preservation in endometrial cancer? So uh, let me <laughs> state first that uh, with this uh, topic, it, it's crucial to say that patients uh, who are candidates for fertility preservation treatment should clearly be referred to a specialized center. Center. So they, they should be seen in a fertility clinic as a fertility sparing treatment is not the standard treatment and this also needs to be clearly uh, informed the, the patient. Mm -hmm. So candidates for fertility sparing treatment are patients with uh, atypical hyperplasia or with grade 1 endometroid endometrial carcinoma without myometrial invasion mm -hmm. and of course only patient with without genetic risk factors so uh, these are the the candidates and you asked for the workup also of these patients so clearly you need a, a histology by endometrial biopsy uh, we recommend in our guidelines that this should preferably be obtained through hysteros Mm -hmm. because it has been shown that it has a higher agreement with final diagnosis as compared to dilatation and, and curettage. So uh, we, we recommend uh, endometrial biopsy preferably through hysteroscopy. Uh, and then, of course, uh, to evaluate the extension of disease and MRIs can or expert ultrasound. Again, the emphasis is on expert ultrasound. It really should be done by an expert sonographer if it substitutes MRI. This needs to be a really experienced person in, in ultrasound. Yeah, really very important point. Uh, now, in, in the article, um, the committee mentions the use of medroxyprogesterone acetate and uh, magestral acetate. Um, I was wondering also if you could tell us uh, with regards to the levonorgestrel intrauterine device or the IUD, is there any one of these that is should be the preferred choice? Uh, it, it's difficult <laughs> to say because there are at the moment uh, no randomized controlled trials comparing the different Uh, approaches, as you say, intrauterine device or, or oral. So the most experience is, is with the oral ones, and this is our uh, recommendation. But <coughs> we also state that uh, intrauterine levonorgestrel device in combination with oral progestins with or without gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs can also be considered. There is evidence uh, that this is given and, and, and is uh, safe and effective, but no randomized control data on this. Right. And uh, just one additional question before leaving the topic of fertility preservation. Uh, one of the questions that many patients often will ask if, you know, certainly if they have a, a great response, complete response, um, they get pregnant. Um, should patients undergo a hysterectomy after completion of the fertility sparing treatment and then having a baby? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We recommend uh, to have hysterectomy. 
after uh, childbearing because the recurrence rates are high. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I wanted to ask you, uh, talking about adjuvant treatment, particularly starting with low-risk patients, polymutations, how do these play a role in the decisions regarding adjuvant treatments? Yeah, so this is the interesting uh, topic, the integration of the molecular markers into our prognostic risk classification. And what you ask now is really uh, impact on decision making. Uh, And this is, of course, a a very hot topic because uh, at the moment there are no level a evidence data, so there are no randomized controlled trials that have analyzed the predictive value uh, of these molecular classifications. So we very well know their prognostic value, but no level A evidence on the predictive value. But despite of this, uh, our working group <coughs> um, has included, and we think it's justifiable, uh, to include uh, also recommendations on on, uh, adjuvant treatment based, as we talk now about poly-E mutant cases, because of the current evidence uh, level that we have. So for the low-risk group, uh, these new guidelines, there are only the 1A endometroid low-grade cancers included without substantial LVSI, Mm -hmm. or we now consider all PAUL-E mutated with pathologic PAUL-E mutations, Mm -hmm. stage 1 and 2, and this is important to say. So just the stage 1 and 2 PAUL-E mutated cases, we clearly stratify into the low-risk group. Our working group felt that there is insufficient data to allocate the stage four to four, uh, stage three to four A poly-E mutated patients into a prognostic risk group. There is absolutely insufficient data to do so currently there, and we uh, recommend prospective registries for these patients that include treatment and outcome data. But for the stage 1 and 2 poly-E mutated endometrial carcinoma, we do give treatment recommendation. Uh, we consider treatment de-escalation mm-hmm. in these patients. So the omission of adjuvant treatment should be considered in stage 1, 2 poly-E mut- uh, patients. Why? why we think this is justifiable uh, with the current evidence that we have. Uh, firstly, poly-E mutated uh, cases, stage 1, 2, have been shown in, really by different groups to have an excellent prognosis, mm-hmm. no matter how you treat them. For example, the new Portex 3 trial data, the translational data, have shown excellent prognosis of poly-E mutated uh, carcinoma in both treatment arms. So no matter what you give to them, they will uh, not or only very rarely recur. Mm-hmm. Also, there are data of observation 
only without adjuvant treatment for the PORTEC-1 trial. And the poly-E mutated cases do extremely well in stage 1 and 2 with almost no relapses. And then there are also preclinical data that have shown that these cases are not hypersensitive towards radiation treatment. So we really... Uh, think one should consider de-escalation and omission of adjuvant treatment in stage 1, 2 poly-immutated cases. Thank you so much. That was a, a very uh, uh, interesting uh, perspective, and, and uh, I'm sure we all will appreciate your, your response to that question. Um, now, moving on to the intermediate risk uh, patients. Um, how, how should these patients today be defined and, and how should an intermediate risk patient be treated? So uh, in these guidelines, we now define intermediate risk as uh, the stage 1B endometroid low-grade carcinomas mm -hmm. or stage 1A endometroid high-grade carcinomas, both, and this is crucial, without substantial LVSI. In addition, we've categorized uh, stage 1A non-endometroid carcinomas without myometrial invasion. So this is uh, non-endometroid histologies in polyps without myometrial invasion and uh, also P53 abnormal uh, non-endometroid or endometroid carcinoma without myometrial invasion. So these polyps uh, being P53 uh, abnormal in immunohistochemistry. So this is, this is the group of intermediate mm -hmm. risk <coughs> classification. And in this uh, group, clearly uh, several trials like the PORTEX-2 and also this uh, Swedish trial uh, comparing external beam with uh, brachytherapy has shown that uh, external beam is in general not necessary. Adjuvant brachytherapy alone uh, can be recommended to decrease vaginal recurrence. It's not known to not increase overall survival, but it can be recommended to decrease vaginal recurrence and even omission of adjuvant brachytherapy can be considered and uh, this particularly in, in patients that are younger than 60 years of age with, with better prognosis. This is based on a Danish trial um, that, that has shown that uh, also with omission of vaginal brachytherapy, you have, of course, a higher rate of local uh, regional recurrence, but it had no effect on overall survival because it can be the relapse can be treated. So adjuvant brachytherapy can be recommended, or the omission of adjuvant brachytherapy can be considered in this group of patients. So now I wanted to uh, move to the high risk patients, and I was particularly interested in the patients who are node negative and the patients who are node positive. What are the guidelines recommending today for those high-risk patients? Uh, and, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on both groups of patients. <laughs> yeah, uh, Pedro, this, uh, 
this was one of our major discussions <laughs> in this uh, interdisciplinary uh, approach of uh, three European society. We had one physical meeting in total. We had three and one physical meeting was particularly <laughs> dedicated <laughs> to adjuvant treatment only. <laughs> and the biggest controversies were in, in this topic that you pointed out now. Uh, so we have stratified risk uh, groups, high intermediate and high risk. So we do differentiate these groups um, in, in the guidelines. So maybe I need to mention this first. High intermediate is now uh, all stage one endometroid carcinoma with substantial LVSI mm -hmm. or the one B's high grade, regardless of LVSI and stage two. So this is our high intermediate uh, group. And then we have the high risk group, which are the all stage three, four A's without residual disease and stage one, four to four A the non-endometroids. And there in the high-risk group, we now also have all T53 abnormal endometrial carcinomas uh, with neomitral invasion inside. Just, just uh, to differentiate these two risk groups. And then for your, your question <coughs> uh, regarding known and unknown nodal status, mm -hmm. so for the high-intermediate risk group uh, with uh, uh, negative uh, so with complete with with lymph uh, node staging performed and negative nodes, uh, we recommend adjuvant brachytherapy okay. again to decrease vaginal recurrence. It has not been shown to to uh, increase survival, but to re decrease vaginal recurrence. And for the group of substantial LVSI or stage two patients. Uh, external beam radiotherapy can be considered. So why this? The uh, LVSI is really a crucial prognostic factor for pelvic regional recurrence, but also for distant metastasis and for overall survival. This has been very nicely shown in the POTEC data and also uh, by a Swedish uh, group. And for the stage twos, uh, we came to this conclusion to consider external beam also because of the Randall data, the GOG249 that has been published in JCO last year uh, that showed that the risk of pelvic and paraortic nodal relapse uh, is reduced in the external uh, beam arm in comparison to vaginal brachytherapy plus three cycles of, of chemotherapy. Um, we also state that uh, in the patients with known lymph node status, uh, adjuvant chemotherapy alone can be considered, and this particularly also in the substantial LVSI uh, group and in the high-grade group. So uh, you see the options that we give uh, uh, that there was controversy, mm -hmm. but we rated these options in really the strength of, of recommendation and level of evidence. So adjuvant brachytherapy can be recommended. Uh, external beam can be considered for substantial LVSI and stage two, but also adjuvant chemotherapy alone can be considered for the substantial LVSI or high-grade tumors. 
And even the omission of adjuvant treatment is an option. But if this is done, surely close follow-up is, is absolutely mandatory to early uh, detect the relapse and to be able to treat the uh, uh, local relapse or relapse uh, in time, of course. Sure. So now I wanted to ask you, before concluding, uh, with regards to the patient with recurrent disease, um, what are the guidelines telling us as to what should be our first strategy for those patients, particularly when the patient is not operable? What should be the recommendations for those patients? So you ask <laughs> about uh, systemic uh, treatment in these patients with current disease uh, not being operable. So um, the, the standard chemotherapy in this treatment has clearly been defined by the GOG uh, 209 study. So this is carboplatin, paclitaxel combination, six cycles every three weeks. Uh, there has been the final OS data published just one month ago. So this is very clear data um, and, and no benefit of the triple uh, chemotherapy with an anthracycline. So ca carbotaxol uh, is the standard of care. Uh, but clearly for patients with low-grade uh, carcinoma and particularly for the patients without rapidly progressive disease, uh, hormone mm -hmm. treatment is the preferred uh, frontline systemic therapy because, of course, it, this is a treatment that, that has less uh, side effects, is well uh, tolerated, and, and uh, is effective, particularly in low-grade carcinoma. So uh, progestins uh, are recommended in these patients or alternatively also aromatized inhibitors, tamoxifen, fulvestran. Yeah. I mean, there are, of course, very interesting uh, upcoming options in these patients. And in, in the U.S., FDA has approved pembrolizumab for microsatellite instable mm -hmm. or mismatria deficient carcinoma. Unfortunately, it's not approved in Europe as yet. Mm -hmm. So you're lucky you have this option mm -hmm. also. The pembrolizumab and lenvatinib mm -hmm. combination for microsatellite stable uh, relapsed patient second line treatment is approved by FDA um, since uh, last year in the US, uh, not in Europe as yet. Mm -hmm. So these are nice options in the relapsed um, setting. Yeah. Great. And so, there are, um, of course, based on the molecular classification, interesting new options arising, but none of them approved. Yeah. So I really, uh, truly enjoyed this discussion. I uh, Also, before concluding, I wanted to also highlight that in the article, our readers can also look at several additional important sections on principles of radiotherapy and pathology reporting, as well as um, psycho-oncological support for patients with endometrial cancer. Professor Nicole Conson, you have been incredibly generous of your time. I really, truly learned a great deal uh, discussing with you, Nicole. I really am appreciative of your uh, uh, answers and, and this discussion. I want to thank you for all that you have contributed to gynecologic oncology and to the patients with uh, women's cancer. So thank you so much. It's been an honor.
thank you so much, Pedro, for having me in this podcast and for allowing me on behalf of the whole working group uh, uh, to, to discuss and present here with you uh, the content of our new guidelines. It, it's a great honor for me and it was a great pleasure uh, to discuss with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole.